encourage you to remain standing and turn back to Hebrews 9, picking up right where we left off in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, and then continuing in our reading through chapter 10, verse 18. We're going to be looking at the entirety of both scripture readings today as our sermon passage, all the way from chapter 9, verse 1 to chapter 10, verse 18. I'll explain a little bit as to why that is. But we're going to continue right now in God's Word from Hebrews 9, verse 23 and following. Let's continue to give careful attention to God's Word. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. A 
And now let us seek God's illumination on his word. Let us pray. Our God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for breathing it out. We thank you for having it transcribed, written down. We thank you for preserving it down through the ages of human history. And we thank you for having it translated by faithful companies of translators into our own languages so that we who are but creatures of flesh and blood, small before you, our creator, can yet hear the word of God in the language of our hearts. And so we pray, as we have stood at attention to hear it read, so now we would sit with illumination as we hear it expounded and proclaimed. And we ask, our God, that your Holy Spirit would fill us and shine in our hearts and that we would be transformed through the reading and proclamation of your word. Be with all of us as we listen and consider and be with the one who speaks. May the words of his mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing unto you. For it is in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I know that some of you came back this spring, late spring, from a trip to Europe. Perhaps some of you have been to Europe or other places like it in the past. How many of you, I wonder, have ever seen the inside of a palace of some sort in person? How many, have, how many of you have been inside a palace of some, some sort? Okay, well, pretty swanky places, right? Beautiful. Lots of gilt, lots of decorations, perhaps rare Renaissance art. For, for those who may not have ever been inside a palace physically, how many of you have ever seen like a documentary where they're showing the inside of, of some, you know, some palace where royalty lives or has lived? Have you ever seen it on a documentary? Okay, so that getting more participation there. I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine that, you're, that you're watching some television channel or some Netflix special or whatever, and it is a, it is a documentary of the... The, the palace of some very famous person. And the camera is going through, and you're, you're seeing all these places that the public never gets to see. The inner chambers of royalty. And you see the, the gold, around, even around the picture frames, the gold teacups, the, the upholstery, and it's, it's very artfully arranged, and it's, and it's beautiful. And you would never be allowed to go in there normally. And you think, wow, look at all this hidden splendor. This is extraordinary. And then the, the, the camera goes dark for a moment. And then it comes back on into the same view, but now something's different. There is blood all over the upholstery, all over the gold, all over this place of hidden splendor. It is spattered and splashed and sprinkled with blood. Now, how do you feel? You're, you're scrambling for the remote, trying to, trying to change the channel. You're putting your hands over the eyes of the small children because all of a sudden, what you're seeing has gone from something like a BBC documentary to a PBS murder mystery. And you're wondering, what, what is going on here? Something like that happens right here at the beginning of our Scripture reading this morning. Now, this is a long passage, but notice that something very much like that happens right at the beginning of chapter 9. The first paragraph there, verses 1 through 5, is, is sort of getting out, giving us the, the hidden tour, the golden tour, as it were, of the inside of the tabernacle or the temple, places where the public was not admitted to go. And even the high priest, how many times per year? 
just once. So you're getting sort of the cinematic view or the cinematic description of, of the golden tour, the inside, the inner chambers of splendor, where God met with His people, the great King, our God. And then all of a sudden in verses 6 and following, the language, the language just changes. And now all of a sudden we're talking about sin and offerings and sacrifices and blood. And it's very interesting as you compare um, the first eight chapters of Hebrews all together, chapters 1 through 8 as a whole, comparing all the first eight chapters to then chapters 9 and 10, the way certain words are used explodes. Let me give you some examples. Between chapters 1 and 8, the word sin or sins is used a total of eight times, so an average of once per chapter. In chapters 9 and 10, that word is used 15 times, almost twice as much. The word offerings or offering or offerings. Also, first eight chapters, eight occurrences. Chapters 9 and 10, 19 occurrences. So again, more than twice. The word sacrifice, four times in chapters 1 through 8, ten times in chapters 9 and 10. But the word that, that explodes in its usage most vividly is the word blood. Because in the whole first eight chapters of Hebrews, that word is only used one time simply to refer to human beings as creatures of flesh and blood. But in chapters 9 and 10, it is used 15 times. Did you hear that as we were reading this, this passage? Blood, 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 blood. What is going on here? We should be asking, what is going on here as we reach these sections of the book of Hebrews? Think about where we've been. Chapter 7, a couple weeks ago, chapter 7 was making one major big point. And that big point was that Jesus can do what no other priest can do. He can make us perfect. How is that possible? Well, chapter 8 last week talked about how is that possible? Because he brings God's power into our hearts in new ways. The new covenant. How is that possible? How did he get this power? How did he become this powerful? Chapters 9 and 10 answered the question by telling us that Jesus did not just become the ultimate priest. He became the ultimate sacrifice. He became the ultimate sacrifice. And one of the things you'll notice if you're reading closely is that in chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 18, our scripture passage today, there are no commands. There are no imperatives. But what we have here is we have a long, a detailed, and a sustained look at the work of the cross and at the work of Jesus on the cross. And I say sustained because you may have felt as we were reading it, first of all, this is a long passage of Scripture. And second of all, it's, it's somewhat repetitive. He keeps coming back to say the same things. Well, that is a literary technique to emphasize, to sustain. He is trying to sustain our focus. Our focus on what? The writer is showing us here in this section of Scripture what was going on behind the scenes, as it were, as Jesus was suffering for us on the cross. What does it mean from the heavenly perspective, as it were, and from the perspective of the, the grand story of the Bible? What does it mean that Jesus died and rose for us? If you think of, of the front of a tapestry, if any, some of you were in palaces. Did you see any tapestries hanging on the walls? 
these old needlework things where they're depicting a picture. Well, if you look on the front, you see a picture that's kind of clean, but if you ever look on the back of a tapestry, what do you see? Threads going everywhere. It's the same here. The front of the tapestry, you see the crucifixion, the idea of the crucifixion, but the back side of the tapestry, you see what's going on, and, the, and this section of Hebrews is showing us what was going on behind the scenes at the cross of Christ. But friends, it's not just a historical lesson. It's not just showing us what was going on behind the scenes of the cross. It is really showing us what is going on behind the scenes of reality itself. Because it wasn't just the ancient Hebrews who practiced sacrifice. Sacrifice is, is ubiquitous across human history. The whole human race from very, very early on has had a sense of a guilty conscience before the divine and therefore has been on a quest, often, quite often, misled, but on a quest to find a way to cleanse our conscience before the Almighty. Even as verse 14 of chapter 9 says that it is possible in Christ that our conscience could be purified. And there is a deep sense among all people, whether they are religious or not, there is a deep sense among all people that there is a personal, almighty God behind the fabric, behind the scenes of reality. Our conscience is witness in each of our hearts to the fact, as verses 27 and 28 say, that it is appointed unto us once to die, but after that, what? Not oblivion, but judgment. But then verse 28 holds out this amazing promise, this possibility that it is actually possible to be eagerly looking forward to that meeting with God. How many of you here today could honestly say, and I'm not looking for your Sunday school answer, I'm looking for your honest answer. How many of you here today could say you are honestly looking forward to the return of Jesus? You're not nervous about it at all. You're eager. You're eager for the clouds to open. Did you say that? How many of us today would honestly have to say, I'm a little nervous? Honestly, there are things that I'm carrying with me that I don't really want to meet Jesus with. But what if today, through studying this passage, you could go from being disquieted or nervous to being eager? That's the promise that's held out for us today in this long, sustained look. Because it is a long, sustained look at the potency or the deep power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the cross of Jesus has three things that it is potent and powerful to do. And those are the three headings on our outlines, kids. The cross of Christ has the potency, the power, to finish what all the old sacrifices foreshadowed. It has the power to forgive us once and for all, really. And it has the power, lastly, to cleanse what we cannot forget, to purify our conscience. And we're going to step through that now, through this long passage, and see how each of these things is true. So we're going to start by looking at how the cross has the potency to finish what the sacrifice is foreshadowed. And the first thing that we need to note, and we're going to be drawing from different portions of this, of this passage as we go. So you're going to be looking at chapter 9, then chapter 10, then back to chapter 9. It's the nature of the passage itself holding together but repeating itself. We'll have to be looking back and forth. So your eyes are going to get some exercise today. And maybe your fingers if your Bible has it on multiple pages. First thing you need to note though, 
is that in the Old Testament, blood was everywhere and yet ultimately powerless. You see right there in the middle of chapter 9, it's talking about verses 16 through 21. It's talking about the inception of the Mosaic Covenant. God with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai making a covenant, giving them the law. And, we're, and we see there in those verses that even at the inception, at that, at that ratification of the Mosaic arrangement, covenant, blood was splashed on the book and on the people. Blood was there at the beginning. You look back at verses 9 and 6 of, of or yeah, 6 and 7 of chapter 9, you see that, that there are ritual sacrifices that were made in the tabernacle and the temple ever since that covenant was inaugurated. And kind of the, the summary of this point then is verse 22 of chapter 9. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the presence of blood in the Old Testament had some powerful, helpful reminders, some positive effects. Number one, chapter 10, verse 3. Every year and in all the sacrifices, there was a reminder of what? It's a reminder of sin. It reminded the people of their sins. Is it helpful to be reminded of our sins? Those of us who can so quickly become self-righteous and condescending, of course it's helpful. Another positive effect was that it offered a sort of symbolical cleansing. You see this pointed out in verse 13 of of chapter 9, that the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh. There was a certain symbolical cleansing that went with it. Nevertheless, it was ultimately powerless. Why? Chapter 10, verse 4, very important statement. For it is impossible impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Even with all that blood all over the place, not a single sin was actually paid for by the blood of bulls and goats. The barrier was still in place. Chapter 9, verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open. One of the commentators on this, on this section of Scripture said it like this, and listen, I'll read this to you. He said, the Old Testament sacrifices, on the one hand, they could assure people of continuing membership in the people of God despite their sins. But on the other hand, they could never achieve the deep cleansing, the healing of memories and imaginations. They could never heal the conscience which, which would make people able to stand boldly and gladly for the presence of God. And so blood was everywhere, but ultimately powerless. And the, and the final verdict on the whole arrangement there is at the beginning of chapter 10. The law had but a shadow of the good things to come. It was a shadow. It was real, a real shadow. But it was never more than a shadow. It's the first thing you need to note. The second thing to note, kids, is that alongside of those shadows, there was a promise. What was that promise? Number two, that all along a final sacrifice was coming. But this sacrifice would not be an animal, but a person. Look at chapter 10, verses 4 through 10. Right after saying it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, then the writer of Hebrews says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, 
And here he's quoting from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. This is Christ speaking. I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Just like we saw in chapters 7 and 8 over the last couple weeks, the Old Testament itself predicted a day when the Old Testament system would be succeeded, fulfilled, improved upon, and finally, in some sense, set aside by the coming of the Messiah, the ultimate priest, the ultimate covenant, the ultimate sacrifice. And here it is. All of those Old Testament animal sacrifices were just pointers to the one perfect human sacrifice that was coming, and it was prophesied all along. And he quotes from us, to us, from Psalm 40 to prove it. And then one of the things that is repeated, I hope you heard this as we read it, over and over in chapters 9 and 10, is that the identity of that age-turning, that epoch-defining sacrifice is not a mystery, but it is known, and his name is Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, verses 8 through 9. Chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. Right here in chapter 10, in front of us, verse 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. These words would have been a shock to ancient people to hear read. But not perhaps for the reason you think. For us today, for modern people, the idea of sacrifice itself is rather distasteful. What would happen if you went out to your backyard and offered an animal sacrifice? Your neighbors would call the police. Would they not? It's true. I'm not making a joke. That, that would literally happen, and I'm not saying you should do it. You should not. But in the ancient world, that was not the shock factor. People were very familiar with sacrifice, especially animal sacrifice. And you know from some of the darker corners of the Old Testament and from the darker corners of archaeology that many cultures were not even that unfamiliar with human sacrifice. It wasn't the idea of sacrifice as such, even human sacrifice as such, that would have been so shocking for the original readers of this letter. What was shocking was the identity of the sacrifice. See, in the ancient world, sacrifices were what people brought to the divine, but in the gospel, what do we see? We have God Himself becoming the victim. Who ever heard of God becoming the sacrifice? That would have been the great shock. And what that shows us, kids, number three, very importantly, is that our God is not bloodthirsty, but rather self-giving. It's very easy for modern armchair critics, living thousands of years after the coming of Christ, essentially put an end to sacrifices in so many places in the world. Living this side of the cross this side of the spread of Christianity around the world, very easy for modern armchair critics to say, oh, you Christians, you believe in blood sacrifice? Isn't that primitive? Isn't that barbaric? But if you actually read the Scriptures closely, you see a different story. When and where was the first sacrifice ever offered in the entire history of the world? Do you know? Maybe you're thinking two guys... Early on in Genesis chapter 4, one of them begins with C and rhymes with Ain, and his brother begins with A and rhymes with Abel. You might think Cain and Abel, right? They're bringing an offering. Cain brings crops. Abel brings 
first fruits, but that is the wrong answer. That is not the first sacrifice in history. The first sacrifice in history was when God himself shed the blood of an animal to clothe Adam and Eve after they fell into sin. That is so important to understand. Sacrifice was not initially something that man brought to God. It was something that God did for man. It was after he promised to bring them a Savior that he gave them this picture. That he through blood, would rescue them. And that same promise, it's the same promise that's going on when Moses throws all that blood around at the foot of Sinai. Look at verses 16 through 17. This is sometimes seen as an obscure text, but it makes sense if you understand this is an extension of God's own promise. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And you're instantly saying, like a last will and testament? Yeah. Well, whose whose last will and testament are we talking about? Whose death? And the answer is Jesus' death. But then look at what the writer does. He says, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And so when Moses at the foot of Sinai is gathering the blood and sprinkling the law and throwing it on the people, that blood that is being spattered there, is not just the blood of animals. It is, again, a picture, just like in the Garden of Eden, of the blood of Jesus that would someday be spread and shed for our sins. All along. All along through Scripture, the sacrifices that the priests brought were just echoes and pictures of the first sacrifice, the promise that God made, and then the final sacrifice that Jesus came to offer. Put another way, to summarize, Sacrifices were never about what we bring to God. They were always, from the very beginning, ultimately about what God would give for us. And so the sacrificial system is not an indicator that God is bloodthirsty, but rather that God is self-giving, that He is, he is loving to the point of self-surrender unto death for you and for me. Isn't that extraordinary? The cross has the power to finish what the sacrifice has started. Yet perhaps the question still remains for us, why the necessity of shedding blood? Why is blood the thing? Why? And that brings us to the second point, to forgive us once and for all. And What does it mean? Why, why the necessity of shedding blood? Number four on your outlines, kids. Forgiveness requires the shedding of blood because sin destroys life. You realize that God is the author of life. All that is good, all that is glorious, there is no good apart from God. Sin, by its definition, is turning away from God. Therefore, sin is turning away from life. And when you turn away from life, you are turning toward what? What's the alternative to life? Get busy living or get busy dying. To turn away from life is to turn toward death. Every time you sin, you are bleeding life. You are dying. By the way, just as an aside, doesn't it then make sense why God feels wrath towards sin? People often say God's wrath and God's love, they must be different. Not at all. It is because God loves life and loves what is good that He hates sin because sin destroys life. And so blood is chosen because blood is the perfect analogy. 
It's something you carry with you in your body. What happens if you start losing blood and the loss of blood is not checked? 100% of the time, if you drain all of your blood out and it is not replaced and, it, and that flow is not stopped, what will happen to you? You will die. Why is blood? Why is blood used? Why did God use blood as the symbol? Why was blood required? Why did He say to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat thereof, you will die? Because sin is death. Sin is not just failing to do what God commands, although it is that. It is not just doing what God forbids, although it is, it is that. Sin every time is also forfeiting life. Likewise, forgiveness is not just God paying for our guilt, although it is that. It is not just God covering us with His righteousness, although it is that. It is restoring us to life. This is what chapter 9 is getting at in verses 12 and 14. He entered once for all into holy places, not by means of the, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, securing what? An eternal redemption. God buying us back from death to life. Verse 14, the blood of Christ is intended to do what? To purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It is not just to cover our guilt, although it is that, but it is to restore us to life. And therefore, blood becomes the perfect symbol, both of our guilt and of the curse that comes from it, but also of our hope in the gospel. Very important to understand that. That is why, among other things, why there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And what about this forgiveness? How important is this to us? It's a very interesting pastoral move that the writer to Hebrews makes. The Hebrews Christians are suffering, right? We've said that every, every week as we've talked about why is this letter being written. They are suffering. They are under persecution. They are dealing with very real and present dangers. Their property is being plundered. They are suffering. They're suffering physical attack. They're suffering social rejection. What would you expect if somebody came, if you, if you came to one of your pastors and said, you know, I'm really being rejected. I'm suffering for the sake of, of, my, of my faith, what would you, how would you expect your pastor or a pastor to respond to you, one of the elders to respond to you? Well, you might expect, at least at first blush, you might expect, well, they're going to give me some good coping strategies. And that's not entirely out of line. But that's not what the writer to Hebrews does here. You see, he has been moving. He's been moving all along. He's been moving all along to try to, here, here's the reason why you don't go back to Judaism. Here's the reason why Jesus is worth everything. And when he's coming to the climax of his argument in verses 9 and 10, he doesn't all of a sudden say, well, here are the coping strategies. He doubles down and goes all in on the topic of sin and offering and sacrifice and blood. Why? Because forgiveness, number five, kids. Some of you thought I forgot. Forgiveness is never a side benefit, but it is always our deepest need. And what the writer is showing us here, and what the Scriptures testify universally here, is that the deepest need of any man and woman at any place or time, in any situation, is not peace on earth, but peace with God. That is your deepest need. That is my deepest need. Think about it. So, let's assume that these recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, let's say some of them said, you know what, it's not worth it. We're going back to Judaism. What does their life look like at that point? Well, less persecution 
maybe more comfort, maybe their family is welcoming them back. But the writer is also showing them, here's the other reality. Chapter 9, verse 9, you're going to just keep giving gifts and sacrifices that can't perfect your conscience. Chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, you're going to keep getting reminders of sin every year, and those blood and that blood of bulls and goats won't take away any of them. Verse 11, you're going to keep looking at the priests that stand daily at their service, offering sacrifices that can never take away your guilt. You might have a comfortable life, but your conscience will never be quiet. Because it's easier to make a comfortable life than it is to make a quiet conscience. Don't you know that to be true? And at the end of it all, the writer reminds them, verse 27 of chapter 9, you will still die, and you will still face the judgment of God. And friends, that's as true for us today as it was for the original readers of this letter. But the good news of the gospel is, if you have peace with God, you can face even the worst things in this world with perspective, with strength, and with peace, even with eager waiting. Because even the worst things that happen to you are just winding down the clock till Jesus returns to take you home. Just this morning as I was preparing to preach, actually while I was waiting for the coffee to finish so that I could prepare to preach, full disclosure, Sitting there waiting for the coffee, the timer's on my watch, eating a protein bar so that I don't run out of blood sugar while I'm standing up here. Preaching is not as easy as it looks, just FYI. Um, I'm reading The Voice of the Martyrs magazine. How many of you get Voice of Martyrs? Oh, you should get it. It's free. No excuse. But they're reading a testimony about this pastor in the Middle East who during a worship service one day, an armed group of radical jihadis run into the church, and they throw the congregation against the wall. They've got their guns, and it looks like things are going to go really bad. But by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, this minister had the presence of mind and the Spirit of Christ to say to his congregation, be at peace, we are going to heaven. They thought they were going then and there. You see, that's the point. In that situation, you might think, my greatest earthly need is for air support. My greatest earthly need is for a force field that can block the bullets that are going to be flying my way in a moment. My greatest earthly need is to somehow get my child out the window so they're not murdered by these jihadis. And the answer is no. Your greatest need is peace with God so that no matter what happens, how long you live, you know where you're going. You can face it with peace. And by the way, When he shouted, be at peace, we're going to heaven, the jihadis lost their nerve and left. They just stole some stuff and walked away. Nobody died that day. But the point is, even if they had, they were ready. The Christians were ready, not because they had peace on earth. They still don't where they're living, but because they have peace with God. That is your deepest need, whether you believe it or not. And so my question to you all, to myself as well, friends, do you, do we have peace with God? That's the big thing. That's what you need most. You might say, well, I need a new job. Maybe I need a relationship. Maybe I need friends. All those things are good things. Praise God if you have them. But even if you don't, you have peace with God. That's your greatest need. How do you know whether you have peace with God or to what degree can you assess your peace with God? Well, I think a great test is right there at the end of verse 28. Are you eagerly waiting for him to come back? 
Or is eagerness a struggle? Perhaps some of you experience what I have often experienced, the sort of like doubts, like little spiders crawling in the back of your conscience, plucking, plucking the threads of old memories or of old fears, making you wonder, what would happen if Jesus came back? Am I really ready? I think I am, but am I really ready? What if you could leave today here from this room knowing that you really are really ready? Would that be a good thing? Would that be a promise worth remembering? I have good news for you. The promise of complete forgiveness of all of your sins is repeated in this passage seven times. Seven times. Chapter 9, verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, securing an eternal redemption. Chapter 9, verse 26. Jesus appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Chapter 9, verse 28. When he comes back, he's already been offered once to bear the sins of many. He's going to come back to bring us home. Chapter 10, verse 10. By that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Chapter 10, verse 12. By a single sacrifice for all time. Chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And finally, verse 18 of chapter 10. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Why so much repetition? God knows it's hard to believe that you're forgiven. But God wants you to be really, really sure. And so he just repeats himself over and over and over again. Just like your pastors do every week. We're not trying to be annoying. We'll stop saying it when you really believe it forever, which is heaven, so wait for it. But the point is this. God is sure, and you should be as well. He's sure that no more payment is required because Jesus paid it all. How many times? Once for all. For all time. No more offerings. That's the point. It's done. It's finished. The temple has been closed. And by the way, since A.D. 70, there's never been a temple rebuilt, has there? Interestingly enough. But the temple was closed when Jesus went to the grave and when he rose from the dead. No more payment is required. God is sure. How about we believe him? God is sure, number two, that he'll finish what he began. And that's the, that's the interesting thing about those verb tenses in verse 14. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That doesn't mean you're perfect now. You don't have any sin in your life. It is a, what they call a prophetic perfect or a perfect of promise. You are being sanctified. God's working in your life. But the, but the outcome is so sure that God can speak of it in the past tense. He has perfected. God is sure that he'll finish what he began. God's not like you or me, takes on a big project and says, Whew, I actually had to walk uphill today. I think I'm done. No. God finishes what he starts. And finally, he's sure that the payment is done and that all, what Jesus is doing now is sitting at the right hand of God, not paying for more sin. The payment is done. Not waiting for you to pay your bit. There is no bit for you to pay. He's simply waiting to return. He's waiting until the fullness of time. God is sure. Last thing we want to talk about today is how can we move our consciences into that sureness of God? 
How can we come to share in God's certainty? This is the last thing. The power of the Christ, the power of the cross, is not just to forgive us, but to cleanse us. This is number, the third heading. The power of the cross can cleanse what we can't forget. Number seven, kids, by believing his promise, we sprinkle our conscience. This was the great promise that he made there in chapter 9, verse 14. Through the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself without blemish to God to do what? To purify our conscience. And even when Moses sprinkled all the people in all the book with the blood, he paired it with a call to believe when he said in verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant. There was a promise made and that the action was calling them to believe. All along, it's been the same, just as our assurance of pardon was today. You want to sprinkle your conscience, you start by believing the promise. When God says, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. When my feelings say I'm not forgiven, God still says I'm forgiven. You choose to believe God rather than your own feelings. And so I ask you, do you right now trust that Jesus is able to make you clean? You trust that he's already begun. If you're not sure, right now, where you are, silently say to him, into your hands I commit my spirit, make me clean. He will always answer that. And then number eight, understand that the cleansing power is not in your faith, but in his sure word. Maybe you have memories that are too dark. Maybe your faith is weak. That's hard. But it doesn't take away his power. You have to take those memories. You have to take even that weak faith and sprinkle it with the blood and with the promises of Christ. You have to say something like this. Lord, I am scared to face you with this. So I'll face it with you. You don't go and try to drown your sorrows. You don't go to try to drown your memories through distractions, whether it's substance or entertainment or other things. Don't drown your sorrows and distractions. Drown your shame in the promises and in the blood of Jesus. Psalm 130, verse 5, that we began worship with this morning. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. How can he be so eager? Because, he says, in his word, I hope. This is what it means to be eagerly waiting, chapter 9, verse 28. It's an eagerness to see God make us 100% clean as he has promised. And therefore, it is an eagerness to surrender everything to him. Because, this is the conclusion, kids, number nine. The promise of the gospel is so big that Christ's blood not only takes away our blame, it also takes away our shame. Do you believe that? God has said it. Will you believe it? Amen. Let us pray. Our God, we do thank you for the word of the promise. We thank you for this long section of Scripture. But this section that is so important, pointing us to our deepest need and your deepest promise. You don't just take away our guilt and clear our record. You are taking away our shame and will someday cleanse our conscience 100%. Lord, we long for that day. And thank you that today is one step closer. Give us faith to believe, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.